This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think number one, it is taking your time. So bleeding, uh, these are tough cases. So you want to be able to see. And so with every bite, just make sure you've got it. There's no very careful dissection, very, very delicate tissue handling. No one's pulling and grabbing things. Then when you're operating at the edge of what your ability is, take it slow. Don't mess around, waste time, but understand your anatomy. Start with, you see your rounds, take your rounds. You know, if you, you know, take the peritoneum, just, if you can see through it, cut it all the same surgical sort of penance that we operate by. So here we are another week and it's another episode with my esteemed, usually co-host, Mark Hoffman. And this is kind of a special pick your brain episode. And I'm happy to get your thoughts because we're going to talk about laparoscopic hysterectomy today. And as a MIG surgeon, I feel you like you've had special insight into laparoscopic hysterectomy. And I'm looking forward to hearing your tips and tricks and also just kind of the evolution of MIGs over the course of your career. Because when did you go to fellowship? I did fellowship from 2010 to 2012. So I've been out. This is year 12, I think, for me in practice. Yeah, I I like to say MIGS is kind of where Eurogyne was 20 years ago. And I think over the course of your career, it's become like this sort of additional fellowship or like specialized training to actually on its way to becoming a subspecialty because people didn't really like couldn't really conceive of what MIGS was before. Well, I think the name didn't help either because like MIGS is kind of the standard of care, right? right? Like minimally invasive surgery is sort of how we're all trying to do surgery. And as we talked in the last episode with you, vaginal hysterectomy is certainly minimally invasive. And I think they're talking now about changing the name. I got a note, one of the AGL things from Arnie that they're going to try to change it to like complex GYN surgery or, or complex gynecologic disorders or something, which which we've talked about for years. I remember when I was looking for jobs and I talked to John Delancey, he, he laughed. He was like, you sound like us 20 years ago. Exactly what you said. And I think that defining what we do based on the pathology, not the approach, was what we've all been kind of talking about for years. And I think when you think of MIGs, it's endometriosis, fibroids, pelvic pain, AUB, things like that. And really focusing on those disorders that I think have maybe not gotten the, the attention that they deserve over the course of the last little bit. So uh, it's an exciting time to be a part of it for sure. How many fellowships were around when you first started and how many are there now? There were 20 and 10 of them were like year one year apprenticeships. So I only I only applied, I think, 10. Like there were now there's like 60 and they're all two years, some are three. There was a high degree of variability from program to program. Some were 0% robotics, some were 100% robotics, some had a research component. So, I mean, there was really just it was starting to become more formalized around the time that I was a, a fellow, but some of the fellowships were really, really different, than, and they likely wouldn't have been able to be fellowships today. So it's a it's a, a testament to the hard work of the the people at FMIGS, the fellowship group, who have put in a lot of time outside of their jobs to really elevate what we're doing to look more like the other boards of specialties in our field. So tell us about your background, like. In residency, what were you doing in terms of approach for cases and then fellowship and then what you do now? So I am from Kentucky and did my medical school at University of Kentucky. And there's a little bit of laparoscopy there. I mean, I think there were some people doing some interesting stuff. But when I got to 
residency at the University of Chicago, my program director, who's great, and it was a great place to train. But she said, you like laparoscopy, but we don't. So good luck trying to figure out how to do, because that was in my personal statement. I knew laparoscopic surgery just from being a medical student. I was watching videos like, I don't even know if YouTube was a thing, but you know, watching surgical videos and really spending a lot of time to try to understand how to get that fellowship. That was my goal, like coming into residency day one was to be a mixed fellow. But a lot of it was DIY. There was no program. There was a couple of people really just barely starting to do some robotics cases. Probably saw like a handful of TLHs. And by the time I was a third and fourth year resident, there were cases where like I was the best surgeon in the room. Not, I guess I was the best at laparoscopy in the room, not the best surgeon per se, but there were some people who were operating who were great surgeons who just did not have laparoscopic skills. And that was something that I put together my own little lap trainer in the hallway. I think we've talked about this before, but like to really, really just try to get good at using the instruments. So when I got a case, if it was like sort of on the fence of whether we would convert or not, like I could, I could do as much, I think, technically as we would need to do to complete the case. I didn't always know the surgical things because you've got attendings who know the right answer, but to be able to technically grab the tissue and, you know, separate tissue and, and do those things, I could do that and keep cases closed more, I think, more often than some of my peers early on, just because that was a focus of mine. I really wanted to get good at it, just throwing knots and things like that laparoscopically. And so matching for a fellowship for me was a huge deal. I mean, it was something I've been working towards for a very, very long time. And I was really, really excited to go, especially to go to Michigan where I did my undergrad. So, you know, it was like going back home a little bit for me. So that was, that was amazing. Michigan was very different from my residency in a lot of reasons, a lot of ways, but one of the biggest was that they had six Da Vinci's in 2010. And Arnie Benkiller was there before he was gone by the time I got there, but his footprint or his fingerprints, I guess, uh, were all over that place because there were six Da Vinci's. They had, I mean, it was really a well-run robotic program there in a way that a lot of places still aren't even doing now over a decade later. There was one Da Vinci at the University of Kentucky at the entire institution when I came to Kentucky in 2012. And it was at a different hospital from where I operated. So again, you go from no or minimal laparoscopy as a resident to like not 100% robotics, but heavy, heavy robotics to basically no robotics. So I'd have to, I didn't have OR time at the place where they had the robot. It was sort of like scratching a little bit to get on the robot. And ultimately it was like, I just can't do these cases if I need the robot because I can't get on. So I stopped using the robot about eight years ago and was doing 100% straight stick traditional laparoscopy. And it was actually really good for me to get, sort of push myself a little bit and just to sort of show that I could really do any of the cases I need to do with traditional laparoscopy. And I've recently gotten back on the XI. We have a lot of residents who want to be robot trained by the time they leave residency and at least have some experience. And I was sort of like, I should be part of that training to some degree. And so I got, had to get, go back and get recertified. And the guy training me was like, you've done this before, right? I was like, yeah, I've done like 100 cases. But um, it had been a while since I'd done it, but I wanted to make sure I did, you know, did all the right steps and did all those things. So I've done probably 30 cases in the last six months, just getting back on the console, which I think there's some good about it. And there's some things that are, I'm still getting used to again, but most of the big tough cases we do straight stick. I mean, the biggest uteruses I've done, I think big, big pathology, sometimes straight stick is a little bit easier. So it sounds like you did not much laparoscopy in your residency to 100% robotics at the sort of start of robotic surgery and then conventional because lack of access to the robot to now getting back on it because you have more access? 
Yeah, now they've got three, I think, maybe including a single port, which I've never never played with yet at the other hospital. But uh, we have an X, we have an XI at the hospital or app right now, and so I have reasonable access to it. It's one of those things where I've always said, you know, surgery is not a place for dabblers, and so if I'm going to do it, I need to make sure that I do enough robotic volume to feel comfortable and confident in using it. And so cases where I wouldn't necessarily need it, I'm definitely getting back on there more just to, because it's not just the surgery, right? It's all the other setup and all the other stuff that can make surgeries go well or not as well. And, you know, positioning of the robot and the patient, you know, in the bed in the room and all those things and the boom. And it's just, it's extra variables that you're not as used to, or you don't have to deal with, with traditional laparoscopy. So it's, it's, it's streamlining and you know, unconscious competence, those types of things that you work for years to get good at. I have to invest time and get reps and get touches to get back there for robotics. Can you tell me what are your criteria? How do you decide on who you're going to take for conventional laparoscopy versus robotic? And, you know, what your thinking is and why do you choose conventional for the biggest and hardest cases? I'm curious about all of it. In general, the answer is just whatever room I'm in, it doesn't have a huge impact. The, the one type of case that really made me want to go back to the robot was myomectomy. There's mm. a lot of sewing. And so, and it's a lot of weird angles. Sometimes you don't get to make your hysterotomy in the most comfortable angle for traditional laparoscopy because you're not going to have wristed instruments. So if you're doing a vertical closure, it's a little bit of a, more of an angle potentially. And you're sewing two and three and four layers on a closure of a hysterotomy. It's a lot. And so to be able to do that robotically is a, is a, it's just a lot easier, honestly. I don't know that it's better. It's just easier for me in doing this long cases. And by the end of a, a long myomectomy with multiple fibroids and multiple hysterotomies, robot is, that's the one case where I, I try to get those on the robot when I can. I also do a lot of mini lap myomectomies too, if they're anterior pathology, if they're getting a C-section anyway, like why fight with all this equipment and then still have to make a three centimeter, two centimeter incision to get the fibroids out? when you could just do the entire thing through a four or five centimeter incision. So the mini laparotomy is something I learned actually in residency. I had an attending who did a bunch of abdominal cerclages with like unbelievably small mini lap incisions, like crazy. And then got to residency and Singita Sinopathy at Chicago was like the first mixed person I got to work with. And I was like, this is going to be great. We'll do this robotic case. And she did a mini lap. And I was like, that's so lame. And then we did it. And it was like, okay, that was kind of amazing. We did the entire case through a tiny little incision. So a lot of it is just get your MRI and see where the pathology is. Is If it's if it's posterior and low, I'm not going to be able to get that through a mini lap. You're going to have to, you know, laparoscopy improves your ability to access those fibroids. And so it's 3D modeling using MRI in my mind, just not under, sort of like visualizing the case before I do it. And how am I going to get at this fibroid and where are the vessels and where's the ovary? And where's the fallopian tube and, you know, where are my vessels? And so if I'm going to have to go anterior here, then posterior there and trying to really imagine how many hysterotomies I'm going to have to make and what angle. And so if it gets to be more complex, for me personally, just fatigue and things like that, the robot can make that a little more user-friendly, I think. But that's not for myomectomy. How about for hysterectomy? How do you decide? Yeah, so for hysterectomy, I... It, it doesn't matter much for me. I and mean, when I say big pathology, I mean, if I'm go if it's a uterus that's above the umbilicus two and three kilo uteruses. What I like about traditional laparoscopy, and I know the XI, you can move the camera around. It's just a lot hard. It's just more steps to like tell your assistant to like take the camera out, put the, and move the arms around. Whereas I can just put the camera in, in different arm and different port sites because each, each step of a hysterectomy is going to be very different in a 
3,000 gram uterus. You know, you're going to have to take each, each step a little differently and that's where port placement matters and those kinds of things. But I think you can get into smaller spaces and you can get into little, little tighter areas with traditional laparoscopy. I, again, I think the more I do, the more, the more touches I get with the robot these days. We just did one the other day that was around two kilos. It was with a partner and did it robotically because that's what, and that's the other thing is one of my partners, someone asked me to come do a case with her and she does primarily robotics. I have a partner from colorectal surgery who does our endo cases together and he doesn't care to use the robot. So we do those straight sticks. So a lot of, it's also a lot of with comfort. I know a lot of urologists are robot only. So a lot of times if I'm doing a co-case, it depends on what the other person wants to use. But I don't have a strong preference. Honestly, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't have a comfort level with one versus the other where I, it, it makes me want to choose one versus the other. How about BMI or prior like vertical midline or any of those things? Endo, like concomitant endo, does that make a difference? Yeah. I think if, again, it's been about six months, I think ask me again in a year or two, I might have a different opinion. We've got a pretty good system and setup for those endo cases, especially when my colorectal colleagues there and we're pretty efficient with it. I think with prior abdominal surgery, I, most of the adhesive disease we deal with is C-section related for the most part. I mean, that's the biggest reason why in terms of our uterine adhesions is, is C-section. And that's something that like, I just, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep about that part of the surgery. For me, it's, there's the bowel involved in those kinds of things. That's where there's a little bit more, it's a little less routine. You want to be more careful there. And that's, you know, having, again, straight stick versus robotic. I'm not as worried about that either. It, it doesn't impact my decision too much between the two. And BMI doesn't matter to you either. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think where we are geographically in Kentucky, we have a much larger BMI than most patients. I do think there is a role for robotics just in terms of fatigue and things like that. And just trying to, you know, crank in those trocars and things like that over long cases. The robot can be a little bit help, a little bit more helpful, a little bit more reach probably with the Da Vinci with the robot compared to traditional laparoscopy. But yeah, that's probably one area The the new robot tables move. Used to be you had to undock the robot if you wanted to change Trendelenburg, you wanted to actually move the patient. That was a huge deal with the old systems. Now with the newer beds, it actually connects to the robot so you can move them around while the robot's docked. That's a, that, that's a, that was a pretty big game changer, I think, for patients. Because a lot of times for our very large patients, getting T-Berg can be tough and getting the bowel out of the pelvis can be tough. And so you'll want to get them steep and then your anesthesiologist kind of taps you, taps you through the drape and says, hey, can we get her out of T-Berg for a few minutes? And you're kind of doing a bit of a dance. Give me five minutes here. I'll get this side. We'll give you five minutes back and kind of going back and forth. And I think it's less of a problem now. But I do know I, I think I think that's a good place for robotics is, is the larger BMI patients for sure. Do you use robots much for your what do you guys use? Are you like So I had a similar trajectory in terms of like I trained during fellowship. Well, I did only conventional laparoscopy. I trained at McGee, so it was Ted Lee and Suketu Mansoria doing a lot of conventional laparoscopy for endo and fibroids and hysterectomies. They don't do a lot of um, myomectomies, mostly hysterectomies. And then I came to fellowship and I did it during 2006 to 2009. And that's when the robot first came out. So I trained doing the robot and it was just very, you know, we were all on the learning curve. These cases were taking a long, long time. The teams were not very trained up on the robot. So we were all learning together. Uh, looking back on it, it's so painful. The teams are so much better now, so much better now. Just laparoscopy in general and, and robotic teams. And like, I can't say enough about how crucial it is. All surgeons know this, but it is so crucial. I'll say it again. It is crucial to have a good team 
And I mean, for open cases and vaginal cases, I think, you know, Kelly or Haney clamps are like pretty basic, but it's just really hard to function in laparoscopy without a team that can help troubleshoot because you're scrubbed in. And you know that we all know that. But anyway, I trained doing both a robot and conventional laparoscopy doing sacral colpoplexies and hysts. And then I came out in fellowship and I did robotic cases, but I was so much faster doing a conventional. Like it would shave off at the minimum 45 minutes. And when you added up that that 45 minutes extra at the minimum, and then the turnover time, because it takes longer to turn over the robotic case. Multiple cases a day. Yeah. Like, and I was a, I was a young mom at the time. I'm, I'm still young. Uh, You're mom, still a young, young mom. mom. I'm still a young mom, but I'm a mom. I was a mom of young children. And the bottom line was I wanted to do more cases and I wanted to get home so that I could see the kids because they were going to bed at like 637, 738. Like you just couldn't book more than two majors. Yeah. And I think with the robot now, like you said, with the teams, like it's getting closer. It's getting close. The the other reason why I think I'll choose robot over traditional laparoscopy for certain cases. So like certain times during resident education, when it's just me, I don't have a resident to assist me. I can do the whole case myself with the robot. I don't need anyone holding the camera. I don't have to have a surgical assistant. There are fewer people that are needed for at least the surgical part of it. The other part is the uterine manipulator. Do you all, what do you do for that? Do you guys always have students available or who? Well, we, we roll deep here. We have a resident and a fellow usually, but even if we don't have a resident, we'll have a surgical assist or a PA who can come in and help. It's a game changer robotically because right now we're getting, you know, with medical students and man, I feel so bad for them, but they, they have a tough job. They're watching TV backwards, holding the manipulator and they don't know what you want to see. And so with traditional laparoscopy, I can grab their hand and hold it and say, hold it right here. And then I can work again. With robotics, it's, I have to tell them and like, they just don't get it. It's not their fault. It's just like, I need to like rotate and push up. And it's like, so, so I'm going back and forth. And so we're actually looking into maybe getting a uterine positioning system or at least asking for one. No one's told me I can have I, it yet, Yeah, but. I was going to say, I know that they sell those positioning systems. We used them in fellowship and they kept the when when you took the bed, the legs of the bed would come up. It would break. It would break the bracket, and they went through a couple of those. But the newer ones, I think, are not are not are not uh, the same construction. But the same idea is, you, like, you can just hold it and move it, and then go back to work and stuff. And I think because we are short on staffing nationally, and we don't have a bunch of extra hands in the OR, and students are not always there, and residents are not always there. Like, that's a pretty key part of the case. At least I think so for the case. I think having a, I think I was having dinner with maybe Barb Levy years ago. And she was like, if someone calls you in to OR for help, where's the first place you go? Between the legs. She goes, every time. Just someone needs to show you where to go. Like I can point, I can can help someone do the entire TLH with the manipulator showing them where to go. Like that's usually where the the learning curve, I think is the the toughest is how a uterine manipulator can be super helpful. So I think that's something that is super important, super important part of a, a TLH. Absolutely. So you choose your you're sort of agnostic on robotic versus conventional laparoscopy for your hysterectomy. Um, and it sounds like size or BMI maybe, but prior surgeries don't really phase you too much or endometriosis. Endometriosis will always phase me, but I think uh, knowing who I like 
It's like if I had like two two like giant strong friends going into a bar, I'd be less nervous about like getting punched in the face. Like going into a tough endo case with a colorectal surgeon or someone who's like used to doing those cases with you, it it makes those cases, you know, we're, we're more prepared to do them. They're still tough. I still I still have a lot of respect for endometriosis for sure. No, absolutely. So tell me about like when you go into the OR and like what are your tips and tricks for positioning and getting access and all that stuff? And I will say just uh, circling back to the point that you said about the using the robot when you don't have assistance. I know a lot of our fellows who went into private practice, they just use the robot because it's just so much easier when you don't have a resident or fellowship. And like for me, since I'm pretty much always operating with a trainee, I like conventional because I get to operate. I also think teaching is a lot easier. It goes, I, go, I go back and forth, but I think with traditional laparoscopy, I can grab their hand and be like, hey, hold this way, you know, move that way. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, you're right there. And with the robot, there's a little bit of separation. But, you know, I think OR setup, and, I, and whenever I have a new student or, when, you know, any new learner and interns and stuff, it's, it's like the same talk every time. It is like, this is the part of surgery that isn't like super exciting and fun, but it's probably the part that like is one of the, is, is certainly one of the most important parts of any case is just like getting your room ready. And so, Number one, go back to the room before the patient gets there. It makes me nuts when residents are like strolling in after the patient's asleep. I'm like, we're like halfway done. We've already like done the setup for the, whether you have a pink pad or whether you have a crepe foam or whatever, like go back and make sure, you know, my case this morning, they had the sheets and the egg crepe foam, not how I want it. So like I had, I know how to make a bed. I know how to put the sheets on and make sure it's right. Cause once the patient's on the bed, well now getting it fixed is super tough. So I would say after you talk to your patient, go through everything, beat them to the OR and make sure things are set up. You have the instruments, do you have the tools you need to do the job? And, and like you said, team, team, team. I mean, my goodness, am I lucky in my job to have a team that I'm pretty reliably or consistently operating with. And I'll get texts at like 630. Hey, what's the deal today for this case? Like they'll like pull stuff ahead of time. They know my routine. They know what we need. And like there's certain variables, you know, we're going to need the tissue extraction bag. Is this a big one? Is this endo, like what are we dealing with? So the team, huge part of setup. So knowing who we got, making sure, you know, I, I know what we're, I'll, I don't know if you do this. I walk in the ORs. I always look to see who else is operating that day. Like what, who are the other surgeons around? Who, who do I, who can I call? Who can run over if I need something just to know who's around? I think like having those, having that in your mind of like, is this a case where I'm going to need, you know, something I don't call folks in the OR very often, but like, it's nice to just kind of have that habit so you know who's around. So OR setup, like understanding how you want your patient's position. But again, I use, we just got the pink pad that was like strapped to the bed, but for a long time, it was just cheap egg crate foam. I always position the patients myself with the residents. Like I'm, I don't like stroll in once they're asleep and drape, like how they're positioned can make an easy case hard and can make a hard case impossible laparoscopically. And so we talked a little bit about this, but once the patients are asleep, they need to be in, I always use some like Allen stirrup, something like that every time, or yellow fins or something slide them down so their sacrum is supported, but their butt's kind of hanging off the edge. Arms tucked at the side always. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why people still, I, I still, like every once in a while I'll hear someone who's like, will have an arm out for laparoscopy and I cannot figure it out. And there's a few reasons why arm tucking is such a huge part of it. But number one, like that's where I'm standing. Like if, I, if the arms are out, like I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to be in pain. We've, you know, we've been lucky to hear you tell us about ergonomics, but you got to have the arms tucked. 
I don't usually use sleds unless I have to. Even pretty big patients, we can tuck arms. But make sure the elbows, wrists are padded, thumbs are up, arms tucked to the side. And really, it's pushing on that elbow. That's like tucking the elbow a little bit underneath them. Straightens the arm and keeps stuff from falling off. If, if it's a loose tuck, you get an F. If the elbows are kind of falling off the bed, we start over. And, I, and, I, and I'll do that myself, too, with the residents. I'm like, all right, this is what we want. Feel this. Because those are the kinds of things you can't really rely on other people to know how to do if, when teams change and rotate. Like, you got to own that. You got to own how the patients are on the bed because, again, early on, someone else does it and then the patients are sliding under the drape and you get into a hard part of the case and start getting some bleeding. And now you got to like take them out of T-Berg because the patient's sliding off the bed. Like it's, that's, it's a never event in my OR. You got to be able to focus on the variables, which is the patient. So once the patient comes in, I try to keep variables at a minimum. So like everybody gets an OG. I don't care if they've had no surgery and we're going to go through the umbilicus. I may end up having to go through Palmer's point, but I don't want to have to remember to put an OG. And so everybody gets an OG. I give all my hysterectomies peridium pre-op, like an hour or two before they get a dose of peridium. So when we systo later, their pee's orange. A lot of the folks when they get their OG and they're like, what, do they drink orange drink? I'm like, no, that's just the peridium. I, I do the same thing with the OG and the, the peridium. I mean, the peridium also increases the void trial pass rate by about 15% is it's when awesome. it shows in at least urogynecologic surgery. But Occasionally, we can't give it because they have some renal issue or something, but I think it, it's super helpful. It's cheap. It works. And then also, they probably are less likely to complain of dysuria afterwards, too, from having a Foley. Oh, the so. Foley tortures patients. Yeah. Tortures patients. So it's a bladder analgesic, too. Yeah, for sure. And then what do you use for your uterine manipulator? We have V-Care now. I was used to using in residency or fellowship. I think they had a Rumi. And then I came here. We had, I was using like a Zoomy. And a co, so a co-cup with like a really just, the Zoomy's good for certain cases. It's not great for a big giant uterus. It's pretty malleable, which is not what you want when you want to have some torque. So we have V-Care now. I was not something I'd ever use. It's a little bit of a learning curve to figure out like a little bit different visual landmarks, I think, compared to like a traditional co-ring. But we use V-Care now and that's, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. I think the other big thing when I first get when the timeout, I, I know we get a lot of folks that like kind of rush through the timeouts. I make everybody stop what they're doing every time. And we introduce everybody by first names. That was something they did in fellowship. I love it. Like tech, tech students, uh, anesthesia providers, medical students, we all want everyone's name. We want to know it. And we ask them until everybody feels like they're part of the team. That's going to increase safety. Someone's going to speak up more likely if we use first names. Everyone knows I'm the surgeon. I don't need Dr. So-and-so in the ORs. And that's based on some airline safety data. And that was something, again, they did in fellowship that we try to carry into the ORs. So creating that safe environment no one's yelling and screaming. It's all pretty quiet and calm. Even the, the crazier things get, the little more chill we have to be to make sure we get through things safely. So creating that environment is a huge part of, uh, of setting up for surgery. But once we're set up, prepped and draped fully, I always do the fully on the field. And it, if you ever need a backfill, having it placed after it's draped, this is like a little pet peeve, but like if you put the fully in first and then you drape over, then the, the fully is just like sitting by their butt and like under the drape in the non-sterile area. And if you have to dig it out and backfill, if you just put it in after it's draped, you've got access to it. So always after it's draped. Manipulator in. One thing I've started to do for robotics cases, because I'm not, I've had a few cases where, again, if someone's manipulating and they're not as you, as, as doing it as, as frequently, they can kind of pull back by accident and sort of aren't sure where it is. And so I've started sewing the co-cup in. There's a couple Vicryl stitches at three and nine o'clock and then sew it to the co-ring. So it, they, they sort of can't mess it up. It can't move once it's in and set, like they can't pull it out by accident. So 
uh, an additional step. But since I'm not at bedside and I can't sort of grab it and see what's going on, I've started sewing it in during the robotics cases. What do you use for your manipulator? Oh, VCare. Yeah. I think ultimately, I think the VA we have, the Ar- Arnie's Cooper Arch, which is nice. It's a little stiffer. I think they're more expensive. So that's why we've not been able to get them at Moran most of the time. But do you use a robotic drape or you use a LEVH or do you do both? LEVH for everything but the robotics cases. And then we'll take for the robots, it's leg drapes. And we'll just use a um, like a lap coli drape. And then I cut from the bottom, like between the legs all the way up almost to the almost to the uh, the abdominal opening. And then the, to keep it from sliding off, it's, uh, I think one of our onk fellows came up with you just take the ends and tie it around the handles for the uh, stirrups. And so like it ties it on to the feet, basically. So you don't have any movement on those drapes and that it, it works like a charm. It's little simple things like that, but just tying the ends of the drape onto the, onto the stirrups keeps it from moving around. And then how do you achieve entry? You have the OGN. Do you do Hassan? Do you do direct entry? Do you use Varus? I try to, I try to use Varus. And again, this is open in residency, um, open entry. And then fellowship, we did a lot of Hassan. And then I've heard now, I think everyone's telling me they use, they all do open entry. But if they've had no prior surgery, I'll go in with, a, with a, a varus in the belly button or just right at the base of the umbilicus. And then palmers and left upper quadrant if they've had any prior surgery. And I used to do, if they've ever, ever had any open surgery or, you know, if they just had a laparoscopy, I would be okay with an umbilical varus, but more and more data and just, you know, anecdotal stuff. I just, palmers is such an easy, safe place to get in. If they've had any, basically any prior surgery, I'll go in Palmer's. What do you do? I do direct. F- all fives? All f- I do mm-hmm. fives and then I do a left lower quadrant eight. So I don't so have you to. still don't have to close fashion. I, close fashion. Closing fashion is my least favorite part of any case. So yeah. I've I, had a couple. I've had too many ilioinguinal or iliohypogastric nerve entrapments. I mean, not that it's that many, but like just having a couple is too many. I mean, the rate is low, but it's like. They have so much pain from there, so much pain, and then you have to inject. Or we, we had to go in one and cut a stitch out and redo it. It was it was actually a, a patient from another hospital, a colleague of mine, their patient was in, happened to be here and we took care of it. But you also don't need to do it. Like do you, So, and this is something I learned too, is all ports bigger than five, or, or I guess bigger than eight, but anything you're going to need to close, keep them midline. You can go suprapubic with a big one. You can go umbilical because the other thing is if you need to extend it so you've got pathology it's a little bigger and you're having trouble getting it out or you like you're not going to extend a right of the left lower quadrant port you're not going to make that bigger if you're pulling your pathology through there if you've got a, a super pubic incision you can make that into fan steel or mini lap you can certainly turn an uh, infra umbilical incision to a, uh, a vertical midline so being able to extend those incisions and the fact that you're never going to get nerve entrapment with those incisions I would say, unless there's a strong reason why you have to. And sometimes for staplers and, you know, other types of surgeries we don't do, I can see that. But unless I'm doing like a dermoid and need to put a big port in, I try to keep everything with fives, all fives. So where do you put your ports? So for normal normal size uterus, camera through the base of the umbilicus, and then right and left lower quadrant. Zero degree? Always at five degree zero scope, unless I have big pathology. If there's a reason why I need to like use it, that's fine. It's one more variable, but for... In most cases, a zero is all I need. And I know some people are pretty married to the angle scopes, but for me, a zero gets the job done, I would say, 19 times out of 20. Right and left lower quadrant ports. That was the study, I think, I think it was Michigan too, the, trying to avoid injuring our um, ileoinguinal and, and our hypogastric vessels, the, the ascending you know, arteries in the abdominal wall, five centimeters cephalide to the ASIS and two centimeters medial 
it's a little high for most cases. So like a lot, a lot of the mix people are doing like two and two. So find the ASIS, two centimeters cephalad, two centimeters medial two, and you're rarely going to find anything. And I, I can't tell you if I've ever had, and I'm sure I will, but an arterial injury through a trocar entry. It, I mean, if you're if you're over there, unless you're really midline. You skive. If you skive, I think you can, you know. Um, Perpendicular I've to the dome. That's You got to really. Yeah, um, you can um, you can get the inferior epigastrics if you really skive and there's not a lot of room. But I, I mean, or you're just traversing a lot of adipose below yeah. the skin and you're just going at this trajectory. I have had it like maybe twice or something, but you, if you just put a stitch around it, it's fine. Yeah. But And I really like the applied balloon ports. I don't know if you guys use those, but I've become very dependent on those because we just, with especially bigger patients, the, the five millimeter ports just slide out and you like, where's my instrument? And you have to keep going back and putting it back in. The apply, the balloon ports are like idiot proof. Once they're in and they're inflated, they're amazing. Even for big patients, even for really thick abdominal walls, they're my go-to for sure. I mean, every time. So how do you decide which one you're going to do a two laterals versus a suprapubic or do you always do suprapubic? Yeah. So I'm an ipsilateral. So I stand on the patient's right and I'll make two incisions on the right and ipsilateral. And I've gotten, I'm trying to do more and my residents will say I don't do it enough. It's just having them start over there. Because if I'm having them operate from the patient's left, they're going to be holding the camera with one arm and using one instrument with their left hand. They're going to be doing a lot more operating if they're on my side. I do think suprapubic, uh, like diamond pattern is much better for teaching because you can share that midline port and hand it back and forth. But I just, I trained with ipsilateral suturing and I just, it's just much easier, I think, to do that. Most people I know, I think, do ipsilateral. Do you guys use, what do you do? I do two left-sided ports. And you're on so the left, like, patient's left? Yeah, and surgeons are on the left. And then I usually, I mean, I'm usually doing the camera on the right. So yeah. I use my left hand driving the camera from the umbilicus and then my right hand and the left in the right lower quadrant. My new partner has so. it set up and then my old partner would do a super pubic. And I think for my amectomies, so the other thing is for my amectomies, because I'm not, I know I'm pulling fibroids out of a mini lap vein steel. I just put a little gel point mini there to start the case and use that as my super pubic port. So I don't have to make an extra incision just to get the fibroids out. So I'll do that for my amectomies specifically, but for straight stick my amectomies, but for hists, yeah, same setup always. And for the Fourth port, I'll just go kind of in between my right lower quadrant and my and my umbilical. But for larger pathology, you've got to be able to get around the uterus, the top of the uterus. So camera's got to be at least four-ish, four or five centimeters above the fundus. Because also, once you get your upper pedicles, it, the uterus is coming up. So it's going to come past you anyway. So you've got to be able to do that. But also, you can't put your lateral ports too far down because you're, you're not going to be able to get across the uterus as well. You kind of have to come over it a little bit. So you have to have to bring your ports up a little bit further north, but it's a balance because you also need to close the cuff. So you have to keep them low enough that you can still get into the pelvis because that's where most of the action is in a hysterectomy is, is, is deep in the pelvis. So walk me through what's your usual steps because I, I assume you have the same steps over and over again because I know when I was training, you know, it was like restore normal anatomy. Yep. Take these pedicles first. I do it the same way every time. So what are your steps every time? Yeah. So typically, assume we can see the uterus and if there's bowel and things like that, like you said, restore normal anatomy. If they have anterior adhesions, C-section scar stuff, I save that for last because in some ways it holds it up. But I think a lot of times you start digging in there and it's bleeding, you can't see very well. So getting your blood supply number one uh, is, is, is important to do early. But start with the fallopian tubes now that we know 
these tubes need to come out. I get the tubes out of the way. I know a lot of people just kind of leave them. And if you're doing a hist without BSO, I think if you wait to get your tubes till later, there's an opportunity to forget. I think if you take the fallopian tubes from distal to proximal and on the mesoscopics and let them dangle in the way and just take them with the uterus, it's going to be in your way. So I always take the fallopian tubes first, just as if you're doing a salpingectomy from sterilization and do that first. Are you using ligature or what's your bipolar? Ligature. Yeah. That's what we have, ligature. Yeah. I, I can never get on the harmonic train. I, I want to know that I've sealed my vessels before I transect them. And which one do you use, the Maryland tip or the I blunt do. tip? Yeah. Maryland tip. Maryland tip. Okay. I like the blunt tip. It was fine. I, I didn't notice a huge difference. For me, the ergonomics is more difficult with the Maryland because you have to really have your hands wide in order to close it. Right. And I think there's two steps with the blunt, right? You have, you clip it and then you hit the button and then you do this versus I can just, it's a lot faster. I mean, I have larger hands, so it's ergonomically, it's fine. Um, it was designed, fortunately for me, for hands like mine, but I can just zip, 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 zip right along because it's all, you know, fluid motion like that. But yeah, the Maryland tip, depending on the size of the uterus, sometimes, so if it's a normal size uterus, I typically get my uterovarians first, kind of get like go just cup, cup. I'll actually, I think it's a little easier to have the contralateral person take the uterovarians. So the person on the patient's right to get the left uterovarians, just an easy angle and very uh, natural, seal three wide pedicles, uh, three wide bites, and then go right in the middle. So you've got a bit of a pedicle on each side. And then sort of carry it along the round ligament, like the round ligament is a clothesline. You're just kind of sealing along to about the midpoint of the round ligament. And that'll lateralize those ovaries and get them out of your way. Because that triangle of the infundibular pelvic to the uterovarian to the round and the external iliac is that triangle in there is pretty safe. So like once you get your uterovarians, you can kind of just pretty easily scoot along under the round to drop your ovaries laterally. For larger pathology where you can't get that angle and come across the uterus and get your uterovarians starting with the rounds, and either way is fine. I also have the residents practice starting with the round if because they're going to be operating potentially independently in private practice and they won't have as, the same level of assistance. So the alternative is start with the rounds, open up a window through the broad and then take your uterovarians on your side from lateral to medial across in the same way. And that still drops the ovaries out. And then get the rounds. If you have significant anterior pathology, I'll just wait on getting my anterior broad. I'll just go posteriorly. And that's, a, that's an, another important step that I think can really save your blood loss and save you, and keep you out of trouble is carrying that posterior peritoneum down to the level of the co-ring posteriorly and then finding your uterines sort of skeletonizing them posteriorly and forget what's happening anteriorly. You can see your uterines. You can just bluntly, just anterior, just sort of like open up the space, just sort of like put your instrument in, open up the tips, just slowly open it up. And almost every time you can find that white pubocervical fascia that's being pushed up by the, by the co-cup with having done zero anterior dissection on the bladder or the anterior broad, anterior leaf of the broad, and sort of push that bladder up and out. Because in any C-section, ideally, you're not putting any stitches through the uterines. You're somewhere medial to that. And so there should be a space, even if it's small, to where you can push that bladder anteriorly, get your uterines, and now we've gotten our entire blood supply and we haven't even done the anterior broad. We haven't even started with the bladder. And so question, I agree about skeletonizing the posterior peritoneum. I think it's a nice trick. Do you look for the ureter? while you're doing that? Because sometimes, I mean, you want to, it, it usually drops it down when you pull down that peritoneum, but do you specifically take a look while you're doing that or you just know where it is? I always look initially. They're always just so far lateral from, unless we're doing a USO, a USO or BSO, 
I want to see that in the sidewall when I'm taking my IP, obviously. But if I've got my uterine, my ovary out, and I've got my round, I'll want to peek at it. But unless there's disease like endo and things like that, like it's going to be way away. If I'm really, if I've got the manipulator pushed way up and... I agree about the pushing it up and in so that the cup is just pushing the the ureters down. I, 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 I'm always looking for this, like I call it my golden view, my critical view. It's like, you know, you go to, you've been to London where they have like the subway signs. It's the red circle with like the blue little rectangle with the station name in it. That to me is the view. I want to see the anterior cup. I want to see the posterior cup. I want to see the ring and I want to see the vessels on either side. And if I've got that ring, it's like, okay, I'm good. I now feel like I've got everything I need to see. I don't care how big the uterus is. I don't care what pathology I've got. When I get that view, it's just like, okay, we can, we know where we are. We know where our vessels are. We know our uterines are lateral. And if I've got the cup pushed up enough, I can take my vessels medial to the cup. I, you never need to be lateral to the cup. That's sort of your lateral margin for operating. And I think you get into trouble when you start chasing, when things are being pushed up and elevated way up with the cup, everything else that you want to stay away from should be low and lateral. If you don't have a good assistant and you're not having them really push up, you're sort of pushing everything in and down and you're putting your instruments towards those things you want to avoid, like the ureters. And I think really elevating the vaginal cuff, the cervicovaginal junction, That's you want that up and elevated as much as possible. And I think that's going to be one of the things to really keep you out of trouble. So up meaning cephalad and flex. Correct. Right? Away Ant- from them antiflex. towards me. Like if, I, yeah. I'm, you know, if, it's, if I'm operating on my side, I'll say, point the uterus at my assistant and like you want to stab them with the uterus. And then I'll say, okay, now stab me with the uterus and my resident can work on the left side. But that allows them to understand like, and, and sometimes, like I said, well, I'll put my hand on there on the manipulator and say, okay, you can feel how hard I'm pushing up here. You know, we don't want to traumatize anybody, but you can push up pretty hard. And by pushing up hard, it really allows us not necessarily to keep everything bad away, but it allows us to see our anatomy on tension to help differentiate where we want to be and where we don't want to be. So where do you take the uterines? Just media, at the level of the cut, at the co-cup? At the level. So you're, this, that corresponds to internal os, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. So I know that if the uterines are coming up over the rim of the co, that that cup is, is the cervicovaginal junction. And so I'm taking them at that level. And I'm, so I'm, I'm using the co-cup as my, as my sort of lateral border. Like I'm not going out lateral if I can help it. I mean, the number of times I've had to open the pelvic sidewall and get the uterine at the origin, I can count on one hand where I felt like I had to do that. It's just something, even in the biggest pathology, once you get down to the cervix, I feel like I can see the uterines. It's fine. So do, when you take the uterines, do you go at a right angle once you uh, skeletonize the uterines? And then do you transect it like perpendicular and then make that into a pedicle, like kind of make it? Yeah, sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll come because where our ports are coming in from lateral, you know, that's your first bite. And I just sort of like work my way in more immediately. And then I'll actually rotate if it's the Maryland tip because it's a bit of an angle. That'll be more of a vertical bite. And then I'll take it. You don't want to take it too immediately because then you get into bleeding from the uterus. So you want to give yourself a wide enough pedicle. But sometimes so once you've once I've got control of the blood supply and it's sealed and I cut it and there's still that part of the uterine that's like right on the co-cup and I can't quite get to it. Again, that's what that's a great angle to come from the opposite side, from the contralateral side. So I have if my resident on the left side has gotten most of the uterine, but there's still a little bit of that base of it right on the co-cup, I can come from my side and I've got a much better angle to kind of undermine it. And that lateralizes the vessel just off the co. And they can do the same thing from my side. So you go to like vertical, kind of like... I almost like come underneath it. Like if, if the co- if the ring is like... Parallel to the... To, parallel to the to the cup, like. Right. 
So you make that that per- perpendicular for the uterine, and then you go vertical just to like skeletonize that. Right, just to kind of lateralize it, just to kind of make sure I get every little bit of it. Yeah, and so because it'll retract, and that's why you want to get it more immediately. So when it retracts, if there's a little oozing, I've got a pedicle that I can grab and see and seal without digging again, without digging laterally. I've got a vessel, I've identified it. There's still normal anatomy lateral to that that I can then pick up and seal. So I'm not I'm. I'm staying out of that area because I know the uter- uterine's coming in underneath that somewhere. I want to know that whatever I'm sealing is going to be right where I want to be. So then tell me about the anterior leaf. And normally, again, it's it's just using one of my, as Dr. Lingell, who's my who's the chair now at Chicago, is German. Just always say, use what God has given you. I think Ted Lee calls it tissue interrogation. You, and like you're just kind of pushing in different areas and opening and seeing what gives and what opens. If they haven't had a C-section, anteriorly for the broad, you can just go in bluntly with your ligature and open the whole space up. And if they've had prior, they've had prior C-section and there's a lot of anterior adhesive disease, I think, again, leaving that anterior scar tissue for last, most of the time you can get, using the co-cup, that ridge, you can identify the bladder and push it down and almost tunnel across over the co and like all the way to the other side and push the bladder down. And then you can sort of address those anterior adhesions last. Sometimes it's just concrete and you've got to get your monopolar scissors and just kind of shave away at it. But for the most part, it's the bladder's lower than most of the adhesions most of the time. And if you're ever not sure, back to the, you know, the setup, retrograde fill your bladder. If you're not sure where the bladder is, if you can't really see. In almost every instance, coming in more lateral than you think, where the tissue is abnormal with the adhesive disease and scarring is the hardest time to figure out where you are or the toughest place to figure out where you are. Start where the anatomy is normal, laterally. So identify your bladder laterally, push your way up. If you can't really tell what's what, retrograde fill it with some saline. Um, and then you can really push it off, worrying about the, the abnormal anatomy last once you've sort of figured out where everything else is. Do you take down the anterior leaf with the ligature or do you use cautery or do you use... That ligature. I use ligature for basically everything with the exception of, unless there's bladder, like it's just the last little bit is just a big fat band of scar tissue and it's probably not bladder, but if I get in, I want to do it cold, I'll just get cold scissors and sometimes use monopolar. I know a lot of places do a lot more monopolar scissors, like Bovey stuff, but I don't use it for the bladder. I'd rather get a bladder bladder injury with uh, monopolar scissors than a ligature for sure, but also, bladder injuries are just so rare. I mean, just it's usually pretty easy to figure out where the bladder is. So that's a good, that's a question because I have heard of several cases of delayed cautery injury to the ureters or to the bladder from using the ligature. And I mean, where's the ureteral injury occurring? Is it at the at the cervicovaginal junction? Is it at the uterovarian? Yeah, I don't really remember. But it was the thought was that. It was from the burning part. I mean, what I use blunt, so the blunt ligature. So I'll just cut down or I'll use a monopolar cautery to, you know, sharp. Again, I think giving yourself bigger margins. So again, when I've got my uterines, like I'm I'm on that co, I'm pushing all that other stuff anteriorly. So when I when I seal my uterines, like there is nothing else in my bite but uterine arteries when I can help it. Clearly there's sometimes with endo, it's just the anatomy's not the same, but when I've given talks on this, when I've given lectures on on TLH and stuff, like showing that critical view where I've just I've I, that bladder is off, that posterior uh, leaf off the off the posterior part of the co is like naked. It's just white pubic cervical fascia. It's just uterines in my bite if I can help it, and that's and it's above the co, so there shouldn't be anything in that bite but vessel. And clearly, there's always a risk of injury with surgery, and doesn't always mean it's bad technique. But that's 
I think really just getting things as clean as you can before you take that bite. I agree about going lateral to medial though. And there's like a million AGL videos about the lateral approach to the the difficult anterior dissection. And then I agree, sharp, you know, if you can help it. The other thing I can I do, I, I mean, on a sacral colpopexy, uh, sometimes I'll just use, well, I'll, a lot of times I'll just use the manipulator, like the Deaver for the posterior wall and then an anterior wall, use a a malleable just to spread out the anterior. You guys dissect so much more too. I mean, you know, I think one of the things is like- We dissect a lot. As I operate with your gynecologist, watch them do a few cyclocolopexies and you go, okay, so whatever I think I'm pushing the bladder off and clearing it off the anterior vaginal wall, like you can go about five times further than we're going. And obviously you don't need to do that for a traditional DLH, but yeah, like give yourself a good bite to the closure, which is, you know, the other thing. I agree. Because you know what? I've seen a couple of fistulas from not taking the bladder far enough down. And then they incorporate the bladder into the vicral sutures for the cuff. And it's easy to do. From the- yeah, not recommend it. Yeah, not, do not recommend. Uh, but that is something to avoid easily if you just give yourself a margin and just go down a couple centimeters. Yep. You know, and obviously you have to use your landmarks with a co and everything. Like, how do you know how far down to take the bladder? Just going past the cup or how do you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always going to be when it's on tension, it's going to look like you've got more vagina to sew than when when you're done. So usually a couple of centimeters at least, because it's going to end up being about half that, I think, once the uterus is off. And so colpotomy, I always just use monopolar cutting. We'll use a hook. I think it's a small instrument. I think the scissors is fine. It's just more active energy source out there in the world. And if I can, the the hook is a very small little instrument, small little tip that I can feel more confident. I personally, I control the pedal. I let the residents do the copotomy cut, but I'll control the pedal cutting and then just make it around. And then if you can pull pathology out, great. If not, we can morselate in a bag vaginally or if we have to through a fan steel. How do you know where to make copotomy? Along, it's just right on that ridge. So again, having that critical view, having that ring right on that, you can sort of see the, in the V-care, there's, a little divot, like a little ridge, I think on the, like the, the other co- the co-cups and things like that. It's more like a, like a corner, but, you know, pretty close to the cervixes. We want to leave people with as much vagina as possible. I um, mean, once you see green on the V-care, it's like we've, we're home. Like when, once I see that green plastic, we can, we can chill out because we know we're there. And so start anteriorly, work my way posteriorly and do the same on the other side. And then just cuff closure after that. How do you maintain pneumo? Do you just stick a glove in or do you glove? Glove okay. with a couple couple uh, Ratex in there. And, you know, we count them, obviously, because you don't want to leave that behind. But yeah, so pull the uterus out or if we're going to more slate later, but pull out, the, you know, pull out the manipulator and put the glove in the vagina. And then we'll backload our, so we use, we use V-Lock or I guess Stratifix if, if it's not on formulary or whatever, you've, whatever you use, but a barbed suture um, and I'll backload it so I don't have to use a big port. I'll take the a lateral port out. I put my instrument through the port. When it's outside the patient, I'll grab the stitch, not the needle, but the stitch. And then I'll put the, I'll use my needle driver as like an introducer, put the needle through the abdominal wall, and then backload the port over top of my instrument and pull it out the same way. So I don't have to ski the needle. I'm not worried about messing with the tip. If you try to shove a CP1 through a robotic port, it'll, you'll come out and it'll fit sometimes, but the, the tip of the needle will get bent. It'll, will get bent or will break off. But so that way you're not messing with the needle bending or anything like that. And then closure, I want to use the mucosa. That's what I'm holding on to when I'm closing the vaginal cuff. So starting with the angle on my own side, I grab the vaginal mucosa, I have it pull across. It's again, it's always on tension. 
my first stitch is just anteriorly to the, just anterior to the uterines coming out in the midline or, or just like in the, at, at nine or at three o'clock in the vaginal cuff on the right. And then I go in about that same spot. And then I come out at about a 45 degree angle coming out just posterior to the uterines, making sure I've got fascia. And then I will tie my loop down medial to the vessels. I don't want to incorporate my vessels. My vessels are lateral. So I know my uterines are lateral. Everything is safe, medial to, medial to what I'm doing. Same landmarks on both sides. I know that some folks will run just the mucosa and then they'll do the pubic cervical fascia back. I do it all in one later. I think the toughest stitch is the opposite angle. You just got to make sure you get vaginal mucosa and fascia on both sides. So you start uh, you start in the middle and go, because isn't it double-sided? I, uh, I, no, it's a loop. So I start on my, my side on the patient's right where I stand and then I'll run to the left and then okay. I'll get the other angle and then I'll lock it. So like my last stitch on the angle, I, I lock my stitch so it sort of captures like the a loop falls lateral to my last stitch. So it sort of sits in between the left uterine and my left angle of the cuff. So it's sort of, I know I've got the cuff captured now. And then I run back, you know, just sort of like not quite an imbricating layer per se, but just run back enough times where it's not going to unwind. Some people will do like in just the mucosa and they'll do a pubocervical fascial layer second. Sometimes they'll do a full second layer. Some people will just like run it back once a couple stitches and cut it. And so there's no, I haven't seen any data necessarily that one versus two layers is better, just as long as you've given yourself enough of that barb suture tail that if it comes undone uh, one or two stitches, it's still going to be uh, intact. Do the patients ever feel the barbs? I have not had anyone complain of the barbs with the exception of right when they're sort of resuming intercourse. As the stitches dissolve, they kind of, the loop breaks apart and sort of you get two points, but usually that just sort of like disappears up into the vaginal mucosa. So back when I used to do post-op, cuff checks. I stopped doing those sort of after COVID and after some of the studies that were done. I think at Pitt, if they're asymptomatic, we don't do post-op cuff checks. But you would see the barbs sometimes, but I would, no, I wouldn't. I don't, I don't get complaints. Are you, are you getting complaints on, on barb sutures or do you guys use barbs for vaginal cuff closures? You know what? I don't really use the barb sutures. That's why I'm asking. And then, but you know, we're doing a lot of these vaginal right. uterosacrals and the, you just get a row. So what do you do for lap, a TLH? A TLH. What do you close with? Well, I haven't done TLH in a long time. I'm just, just doing mostly vaginal. Robotically, hist. are you doing? I guess same thing. You're just doing something mostly vaginal. You're not doing many hists. Yeah, most. Yeah, because no, you're robotic, so they've many. already had a hist. You're just doing circular colpexy because you can't get them from below, or not, not can't. I but just like, do. I for primary uterovaginal prolapse, I'm just doing vaginal surgery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, it's barb suture has been great, and it's monofilament, and it's the other thing is. Yeah, I like PDS for sure, and it closes, and it's it's. There's tension along the whole line, so yeah, it's, 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 e e it's e evenly distributed across yeah, the suture line. Yeah. So I, I think it's a great, a great technological advancement. I think for laparoscopic surgery. Yeah, the vaginal the, the vaginal cuff dehiscences were a huge problem for a while, and that was with the Vicrol, I think. You know, I they talked about was it the energy with the monopolar? Was it the with the robot that we thought we were taking bigger bites? I think a lot of it, ultimately, my theory is if you got a hemostatic cuff. You know, I think a lot of the cuff dehiscences, and not that I've seen a lot, you know, as again, I think 1% or less is about the national average, and I think I'm a little below that. But most of the time, it's some kind of like infection, right? It's whether they have a little hematoma that becomes a little or becomes an abscess that then kind of, I think, compromises the healing a little bit and will open up that way. And there's usually something else. And so I think the more you do, the more, the less blood loss, and the more you're able to keep things drier. 
I think your dehiscence rate is going to go down quite a bit as well. But I think a lot of it, if there's no food for the bacteria, if it's, you know, it's not a big giant pool of blood sitting right in the cuff, that's a bad combo. It's a big opportunity for an abscess. Are you giving both ANSEF and flagell or cefazolin and flagell? So we're just, we're just looking at that right now. I haven't been adding flagell. We're probably going to start doing that pretty soon. But yeah, we've been using ANSEF, but we'll, we may switch to cefazolin. That was like, we talked about that last time too, the Michigan study looking at cefazolin and flagell. I mean, I think it makes sense. I don't think there's any the risk is significant. But, and also for our endo cases, when we've got potential bowel surgery, we're using cefazolin for those too. So I think it makes sense just to simplify and keep the same antibiotic for everything. And I cysto for every history. Like, what are your tips and tricks for patients who have those big uri? You already mentioned putting the ports, like edging a little bit more cephalad. Like, do you use the, I mean, it's harder to manipulate the uterus. Do you use a tenaculum and, and put an extra port or what do you do? A general colleagues always told me fives are free. So if you need an extra port, put the extra port in. Like one extra port is going to be a lot better than a laparotomy. I think number one, it is taking your time. So bleeding, uh, these are tough cases. So you want to be able to see. And so with every bite, just make sure you've got it. There's no very careful Dissection, very, very delicate tissue handling. No one's pulling and grabbing things. Then when you're operating at the edge of what your ability is, take it slow. Don't mess around, waste time, but understand your anatomy. Start with, if you see your rounds, take your rounds. You know, if you, you know, take the peritoneum, just, if you can see through it, cut it. All the same surgical sort of penance that we operate by. But sometimes, you know, if, our, if the uterus is 30 weeks, I can't really get around to that uterovarian from cephalad to call it, I may have to take my round, open up the broad and come up towards the head to get my urovarians that way and move the camera around. If I can't quite get this bite, move your camera to a lateral port, see what I can see, use a 30 degree scope. You st- I, it's the same views. I want that same critical view. I want to dissect the posterior peritoneum and the anterior peritoneum. I want to do all the same steps on these big, don't, don't reinvent the wheel. It's still a uterus. The anatomy, it's all the same blood supply for the most part. It's all the same, you know, bladder anteriorly outposture, it's all going to be the same. And so don't compromise your views. Don't compromise your expectations for what you want to see on these cases. Because ultimately, the vagina is basically the same. I don't care how big the uterus is. And so if I've got a coke up up there, if I can get down there and see it, when you have these big giant uteruses and you finally like push on the cup and you're like, okay, I, that was so much work is now paid off. We're sort of like we're home. Like now we can sort of work on that stuff and get in the vessels. The other thing is these, the big uteruses, the big giant vessels, sometimes it's bigger than my ligature can grab. Don't forget you have other instruments which, with a much wider grab. So whether it's a, a park or a Maryland or a, a blunt, just any blunt grasper, you can get a much wider grasp. So grab the vessel with that. It'll compress the vessel. Now I can get my ligature in over top of that and seal it and then seal it and seal it and seal it and seal it and seal it. Don't cut it until you've got the other uterine because if you have back bleeding, it's going to keep feeding it and be worse. So again, Go slow, get your blood supply the same way. I know there's a lot of people that will get the, the uterine at the origin, at the hypogastric. I've never found that to be particularly useful. I mean, the biggest uterus I've, I've removed laparoscopically was six kilos, 6,000 grams. That was ridiculous. I'm not sure I would want to recommend that anyone else do that. But, but the anatomy is the same. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just big and bulky. And so you got to kind of slide in laterally and make sure you can see your ureter. Those are the ones where you really want to see things all the way down, opening up your sidewall and those kinds of things when needed. But it's just each step, take a breath. What are, what's the goal here? How are we going to get this? If I can't reach it this way, 
how can I rearrange my ports? How can I rearrange my, rearrange my instrumentation to get this vessel from a better angle? And just taking a step back and looking at all the ports you have, and do I need to add one? You have a lot of tools at your disposal in these cases. So I think sort of taking a step back and being a little creative sometimes can all of a sudden make a big deal. And I think, and I've told this to a lot of my colleagues when we're doing these hard cases, like it's not usually that the whole case is hard. Rarely you'll get a case where just everything is awful. Usually you get to a point and go, okay, I don't really know what to do right now. That's when you call for help. Say, hey, you know, I have a senior partner or someone who's a specialist and have them come in and they go, okay, I'm going to show you this one part. Now you can go back to doing the rest of the big case. Challenge yourself, but do it in a way that's safe. Because usually it's just one or two parts of a case. That's really where you just, I can't get, I can't see what's behind this wall. I can't get over this one hill. If I could just see the next step, I'd be fine. And so it's usually one or two steps. But, you know, with each case you do, you go, okay, now I know how to do this part. Now I know how to do that part. And next time I'll put the camera a little bit higher. Next time I'll put my ports a little bit higher for those reasons. But I think just be patient and really allow yourself the opportunity to try to figure these things out. The only other thing with the big giant cases is once you make your anterior colpotomy, you, because they're so heavy, you can't use the V-care to lift up the uterus as much. And sometimes it sits, the cervix sits on the, on the, on the bowel and getting the colpotomy posteriorly is pretty challenging. That's what I'll use. That's like the one of the few times I use a tenaculum and I'll grab the cervix and just lift it up and I'll actually take the manipulator out at that point. So now you've just got like a band of posterior vagina you can just run across safely up off the bowel because sometimes the V-care can actually limit you. It's sort of holding things down. So if you get stuck, you've already defined your anatomy, got your uterines, and you're just trying to get the vaginal cuff taken care of, that's a good time to take your manipulator out. It may not be helping you that much. And it, may actually, it may actually be hindering you a little bit. How do you morselate? Applied bag. There's a more tissue morselation bag. The bigger one 17 centimeters across. The biggest uterus I've fit in there is 2,500 grams. So pretty big. I mean, that's, that's as big as most anybody will do. You know, I've had conversations with patients like, look, if it's bigger than that, you know, we have to have a conversation. Are we going to make a laparotomy and taking it out one piece? Are we going to morsel it without contained morselation? And that's, I think, I think it's a reasonable discussion to have with patients and explain the data. And there may be a occult malignancy. It's unlikely, but give them the opportunity because in that Michigan paper years ago, the actually one of our former residents wrote based on, you know, doing away with the mechanical morselator, there's, you know, more women are being injured from just laparotomy. If you did all those ones open, there'd be more people that have injury and complications from that than Lyme sarcoma, which is a terrible disease, but it's also thankfully quite rare. And so just having an informed conversation with patients, letting them know what their options are. And the six kilo uterus, there's no bag for that. That was a, that was a, that was a, a conversation with a patient who really saw, who saw me out, really wanted me to try. I was like, look, I don't think we should probably do, you know, I, I think this is something that we have to be honest about what we think we can do and I'm willing to try. I'm not going to do anything unsafe. And if I feel there's ever a point in the case where I don't feel like we can safely see what we need to see, we'll open and that's fine. And again, it was all fundal pathology. Once you get the upper pedicles, it looked like a regular hysterectomy. It was just 40 week size, but there's no bag for that. So yeah, in, in general we do, but if we can't, we'll have an informed discussion with patients. So you use, you do contain morselation with yeah. the morselator in the bag. And you can do that through a fan and steel or do it vaginally. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there's different morselation techniques. Like, you can bag it and do vaginal morselation. You can bag it and just do sharp with a scalpel. You can bag it and use a... I usually use scissors, um, and we've got some long curved mayos that are nice. So, the longer scissors, actually, it's much less effort, you know, for a longer lever because, you know, chopping up fibroids and stuff. But did a case the other day with a colleague who was sort of like, 
was going to do a gel point like up in the upper abdomen with the robots. Like, let's just, let's try to use all eights up here. And I think we can get it out from below. And afterwards, I actually left when she was morselating and I set her up and came back and like she was done in 20 minutes on a, on a you know, a, a one kilo uterus that was a pretty tough one kilo uterus, tons of prior surgeries and things like that. But one, the newer ones have like a, a firm plastic sort of like cylinder you put in and you put an Alexis inside that and it really opens things up and keeps all the anatomy really well retracted in a way that allows you to see pretty well and even, you know, for big pathologies. So I think vaginal morselation in bag is something that's actually, they've developed a pretty nice system Applied did for their, their morselation bags. That's pretty awesome. Well, I know I've kept you for a long time, but I love picking your brain and um, hearing the tips and tricks. I always like to say, once you know the steps of surgery, it's really just a series of tips and tricks. You know, that's it. It's, it's little bits. And you, each time you do one, you go, okay, that was interesting. I'll do it that way next time. And that's, again, same thing. Last time when you and I got to chat about vaginal surgery, it's like, I have to see it from like the other side. I have to understand like how you get to my version of that. So yeah, I know that was, it was a blast talking to you last time and it was fun to do this today. I think the other thing that I'll just caution people when you're listening to this, it's like, you have to have constant analysis of all the steps like you're talking about and like where are the pitfalls and just be really analytical, not just of like complications, which are obvious, but like things that didn't go well in the case, you know, and like try and analyze what you can do better all the time. And that is one of the keys to becoming a better surgeon. Know your limitations. And that was something I think I got a lot of grief when I first started out. And I got some good advice from senior partners, like don't be a cowboy. Like there's no, patients are not, you know, to be experimented on, right? We need to understand our own limitations and we, we need to ask for help. There's no pride here. This is about patient outcomes. This is about patients doing well. Ask for help. If you don't have the person nearby that can help you do this tough case, then it's probably time for that tough case to be an easier case if it's open for you or whatever. And making sure you do a good pre-op workup and know who's going to be there that day or know what partner you might need to call in. But yeah, like, we got to be safe and it's amazing to have mentors and have sessions like this where we can sort of help each other figure out how to do some tougher cases. But ultimately, like there are safe ways to advance your practice. And so make sure, make sure folks are doing that for sure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. With support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.